As many of you know, this past Tuesday, Marsh and I just got back from a tour to England. We went with about 25 other Methodist pastors from some of the largest Methodist churches in America. It was a John Wesley Heritage Tour. I'd never been to England. It was an incredibly informative, inspirational, and an exciting time. We started early on out at Epworth. Epworth is where John Wesley was born in 1703. His father Samuel was the rector, the pastor there at St. Andrew's Church in Epworth. John Wesley was born into an interesting world. For 200 years, England had been in tremendous religious strife. Ever since Martin Luther had started the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s in Germany, King Henry VIII, there in England, had responded. He was a good Catholic, and he condemned the Protestants and condemned Luther for leaving the Catholic Church. He was known as the defender of the faith until he needed to get a divorce from his first wife, uh, Catherine of Aragon, and the Pope said no. So then Henry became anti-Catholic, and he started the Church of England, and he broke away. It wound up being his son, his son Edward, who would come along, and, and he would really move the Anglican Church more in a Protestant direction. But then Mary came to the throne, and she was wanting him to be Catholic, and so now all of England became Catholic, and they began to to, to persecute the, the Protestants in the Church of England. But then Elizabeth came to the throne, and Elizabeth wanted them to be back in the Church of England, to be Protestant, and, and so now the Catholics were on the out. And then King James came along, and it was the King James version of the Bible got created, and they stayed Anglican. But then there was Oliver Cromwell who came along and overthrew the monarchy. And he was not excited about the Catholics or the Anglicans. He felt they were not pure enough. And so he was a part of the Puritans. There was a group of these unhappy people in England who decided to get on a boat and sail somewhere, you remember. There were the Puritans, Oliver Cromwell, and so they didn't like the Catholics or the Anglicans. And so then Charles II came back and reestablished the monarchy and reestablished the Church of England and now they were Protestant again and the Church of England was reestablished and everyone had to sign what was called the Act of Uniformity. If you were going to be a pastor, you had to sign the Act of Uniformity that said, I will follow the common book of prayer, we will all worship the same way, we will believe the same things. For 200 years, whoever was in charge vilified the group that was not. They demonized them. They said they were wrong. They cast them in the prison. They would burn them at the stake. If the Catholics were in charge, the Protestants were going to be thrown into prison and burned at the stake, and you had no say. If the Protestants were in charge, well, the Catholics were burned at the stake and thrown into prison, and and we wouldn't let you worship. And if the Puritans were in charge, everybody was going to be in trouble then. For 200 years, such rigid, dogmatic approaches to faith, and all according to who is in charge, determined. And into that world, John Wesley was born. Fascinating thing about his family is both of his grandfathers were dissidents, nonconformists. They wouldn't sign the Act of Uniformity. They were against the Anglican Church. 
And yet his father Samuel did, and he was an Anglican priest. Susanna certainly supported that. John Wesley would grow up and he would be ordained in the Church of England, be an Anglican priest. But maybe it's because he already saw the struggles in his own family and he saw the issues going back down through 200 years of history. When John Wesley began going through England and preaching, he brought a different message. A different message that had been heard in these last 200 years in his country. He started saying things like, Nobody has all the truth. Think and let think. He talked about a Catholic spirit. The word Catholic literally means universal. And so he said, if you love, if you love Christ and you love your neighbor as yourself, give me the right hand of fellowship. We can be friends. Let's get to know one another. We may think differently. We may look differently. But can't we get to know one another? Can't we talk with each other? Now, if you love God and you love your neighbor, we're going to be on the same team. Let's be friends. Nobody has all the truth. What a fresh word in a world that was desperate for that. And it's that word why I am a Methodist to this day. It's why I'm a Methodist. It was inspiring to go and see these many places in his life. And while we were there, of course, we went to London and we had a couple of nights free. And so on one of those nights, we went to the West End, the theater district, went to the Apollo Theater, and there we saw the musical Wicked. We had seen it when it came here to the music hall in Oklahoma City, but it was great to go see it again there in West End. And the show was was terrific. If you have not seen Wicked or don't know anything about the show, you need to understand, to understand Wicked, you have to remember The Wizard of Oz. Because that's what the show really is all about. The subtitle of the, sh- of the show is Wicked, The Untold Stories of the, Witch- of the Witches of Oz. We've got to go back for a second and look at that. And I wanted to do that because when I saw Wicked, what struck me was that the message of the show was really a message of, can't we get to know people who are different from us? Can't we learn to respect other people who are different from us? Can't we learn to become friends even though we may look different or sometimes act different? Can't we strive together for a world of kindness and compassion and goodness? When I went to go see Wicked, I thought, it's the message I've been hearing that was proclaimed in this country, in England, 300 years ago. It's a message that somehow still doesn't keep getting proclaimed. You go back and remember The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz was written by L. Frank Baum. The interesting thing is, he was a good Methodist. L. Frank Baum wrote The Wizard of Oz in 1900. That's when it came out. In 1902, The Wizard of Oz went to a stage, to the stage play in Chicago. In 1903, The Wizard of Oz went to Broadway. By 1938, it had sold a million copies. And in 1939, Judy Garland, playing Dorothy, came out in the movie. The Wizard of Oz. Every child has to see that growing up. 
We all know about the Wizard of Oz and Dorothy and Toto and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Lion and that Wicked Witch of the West and those flying monkeys. How many children, how many of us have gone to sleep as a child after watching The Wizard of Oz afraid of that wicked witch and those flying monkeys? Now, we've all seen them. It's become a part of our culture. We all know the story. We use that phrase of, you're not in Kansas anymore. I mean, it's such a powerful show. Well, it was in the early 1990s, Gregory Maguire was in London. He was in London and he was looking at history the history of Hitler and World War II in England. And i got to tell you, you go to London, you got to go see Churchill's bunkers and learn all about the war room and what went on in the World War II. And McGuire was there and he was looking at this and thinking of Hitler. Thinking of how Hitler had tried to create a, an Aryan race. A group of one people who all look alike and think alike and act alike. And if you didn't look and act and think like all the rest of the people he thought you should be, then he vilified you. He demonized you. He talked about how you were evil and bad and needed to be destroyed. And so we know that Hitler sent six million Jews to the gas chambers. But sometimes we forget he sent another five million people to the gas chambers. They were the Catholics, Jehovah Witness the gypsies, homosexuals, and the handicapped. He looked at all of those people and thought, we don't need those people who are different in our society, our pure race. And so there was another 5 million, plus the other 6 million, 11 million people that he got rid of because you're different. Well, McGuire was there in London and he was thinking about all this because you see, He was gay. He knew what it was like to be judged when somebody doesn't know you. He knew what it was like to be bullied because of a label. He knew what it was like to be ostracized for being different. And so he decided to sit down and and had a brilliant idea. Why not write a story about the most a feared villain in literature, a wicked witch of the West, and will tell her story that nobody else knows. You get a little story from Dorothy, but only from Dorothy. What's the true story of the wicked witch of the West and the good witch? And so that's what he did. He, he wrote that book. It came out in 1995. It was then left to Mark Platt and David Stone, Stephen Schwartz, they took the book and they changed it and made it into a a stage play, the musical that would go to Broadway, 2003. Huge instant success. It is still running. It is now the 11th longest running musical in Broadway history. It is still running from the time it opened in West End in London. And I hear they're going to be making it into a movie in 16 or 2017. And It's still, as I say, running, so I'm going to be careful today to not tell you everything in the show. I'm not going to have to give any spoiler alerts here, because in case you want to go see the show or when the movie comes out, there's still lots of neat things to go learn and to go see. But we've got to talk a little bit about the show, so I've got to tell you some.
the character that is most known is Elphaba. Elphaba will become the wicked witch of the West. Now the name Elphaba comes from L. Frank Braun. L-F-B. Elphaba. It's how McGuire wanted to give credit to Frank Braun who had written um, The Wizard of Oz. And that's how he comes up with the name Elphaba for this main character. As we all know, the Wicked Witch is green. And when this baby is born and is green, her father is just horrified. He immediately rejects his daughter, wants nothing to do with her. She is set aside. And everyone who comes around and sees this green baby, no one wants anything to do with her just because she looks different. She didn't ask for it. She didn't even cause it. But she is so mistreated. She does have a sister who gets born later on. She is beautiful, Nessa Rose. But Nessa Rose is crippled, and she will be in a wheelchair all of her life. And so it is the family dotes on Nessa Rose, and Elphaba finds herself having to take care of her younger sister. Once they grow up and they've become older, they are sent off to, to school, and when they get sent off to a, a boarding school, Elphaba is going to be taking care of Nessa Rose, but the madam, Madam Morrible, she takes Nessa Rose and said, I'll take care of her, and I'm going to give you a roommate. And so she gets signed a roommate named Galinda. Now, Galinda is everything that Elphaba is not. Galinda, well, she's beautiful, and she's rich, and she's popular. And she's blonde. And so it is, these two are just as different as they can be. And they despise each other. They cannot stand each other. Even though they don't know each other. And that's really what the show is about. How we despise and vilify the people we don't even know. They just knew from the beginning, we're not going to like each other. And so it is that Elphaba turns out to have some real powers. Madame Morrible sees it and says, I want to teach you how to use magic. I'm going to help you become a good witch. Well, that's the very thing that Galinda wants, but she's not asked. But Elphaba is asked to be a good witch, and she's going to learn the magic. So there is a dance. And at the dance, Galinda speaks to one of the munchkins. You remember the munchkins? Seeks to a munchkin to go ask Nessa Rose to dance. Not to get out of the wheelchair, but to push her around to be her date at the dance. And Nessa Rose has the most wonderful night in her life. She just thinks that she is made perfect for this man, that surely they will be married. And she comes back all excited to Elphaba, telling her what Galinda has done for her by helping her to have this date with this munchkin. Elphaba is touched that Galinda would do something nice for her sister. And so she goes to Madame Morrible and says, why don't you let Galinda learn magic too? And so now we have the two women to be learning magic who become the good witch and the wicked witch of the West. And their one great dream is to see the Wizard of Oz. And so they ultimately will travel to see the wizard. And as you and I know further on in the story, the wizard is not what he appears to be. They meet the wizard, and in that story, we find the wizard 
not only is kind of a bumbling person, but he's also a mean person. No, in Wicked, what we find is that the wizard, well, he is taking the animals. The animals in the land of Oz can speak. They teach in the universities. And he wants to take away their voice because they're different. He wants to take away their voice and put them into cages because they're different. And then he wants to have flying monkeys so that he can watch over his people. And when Galinda finds out what the Oz is up to, what the wizard is up to, she is furious. She wants to stand up for the animals. She wants to stand up for the people. She's a lady of compassion and integrity, and she has gumption in her. She wants to respond, and the wizard wants her to get on his team. Galinda decides, I'll work with the wizard for good, but Elphaba decides, I don't want to do that. And so, the wizard knows she knows too much. And he begins to spread lies and tell stories and convinces the people she's wicked. She is to be feared. She needs to die. I thought of our scripture lesson and how the Pharisees go before the Roman authorities and say, this man, this man is perverting the nation. He's claiming to be a king. He's causing riots and problems. They come and tell all kinds of lies about Jesus. This man of compassion, this man of love, who's been about healing and feeding and caring for the people, but threatens power. Well, they rise up and they say, let me tell you what he's really like. And they tell all these lies. And they go to the people and have the people shout, crucify him. So that Jesus will die. It is so easy to vilify other people, to tell stories about them, if they're not the people we want them to be. It may be a story that took place in the land of Oz so long ago. It may be literature, but it's a story that really has been taking place for thousands of years. Through King Henry and all in England, back to the time of Jesus. And the sad thing is it still happens today. For the next 15 months are some of the most difficult months to live here in America. Because we're in a middle political campaign. And for the next 15 months, you will have people who vilify the other side. And they will tell stories, and they will try to point out everything wrong, and they will tell all these lies or things that are maybe half true. And we have to listen to this stuff. How hard and how much should we work to try to see through what we can to hear truth? You know, I think about all the kids who are going back to school right now. School's coming back into session. School's not always a happy time. Can you think back to when you were in school? Kids come back. They start to get polarized. Who looks different? Who's going to be ostracized? Who's going to be laughed at? Who are they going to bully? School's not always easy. It's not always fun. I think of all the kids who are moving into tough times. Parents, grandparents, listen to your children, your grandchildren. If they're hurting, or you need to make sure they're not bullying someone because they're different. 
you listen to the news, you look around in our own culture today, it isn't hard to find story after story to where we judge people we do not know, we have not taken time to know them, or we lump them together in groups and we pass judgment on them. We need a message from John Wesley to say, nobody has all the truth. Think and let think. If you love God and you love your neighbor, we're on the same team. Let's try to get to know each other. And maybe we can do something good together. I believe it very much was the message of John Wesley. It's our scripture. It's also what was talked about in Wicked. And I don't want to share, as I said, all the things about Wicked and steal some of the fun things you'll see if you go see the movie or the show. But there were two songs that I believe say what the show is about and also help to illustrate our scripture. Two things. One, one of the songs was Defying Gravity. You heard it just a few moments ago. Elphaba comes to a point in her life that she has to decide, am I just going to go with the status quo? I see what the wizard is doing. Can I live with the status quo and just get along? Or do I have to stand up for in, against injustice? Do I have to stand up for a sense of love and fairness and what's right? Is I'm going to be asked to do something more than I think I can do? This little woman versus the Wizard of Oz? What can I possibly do? And so I love it when she sings the song. Hear the words again, knowing what she's confronted with. Something has changed within me. Something is not the same. I'm through with playing by the rules of someone else's game. Too late for second guessing. Too late to go back to sleep. It's time to trust my instincts. Close my eyes and leap. I'm trying to defy gravity. I think I'm trying to defy gravity and you can't pull me down. I'm through accepting limits because someone else says they're so. Some things I cannot change, but till I try, I'll never know. And in the show, Elphaba begins to fly with a broom for the first time to realize she has the power to defy gravity and to fly. And she decides what she will do. I thought of our disciples, a group of fishermen, illiterate, poor. Jesus has been crucified, resurrected. They find themselves in Jerusalem, and all the authorities say, be quiet. They know the rules, and they rise up. Talk about defying the authority, defying what would be expected. A group of illiterate, poor fishermen, tax collectors, saying, we're going to go out and change the world? And 2,000 years later, Christ's church continues to grow? It's like I can hear those disciples saying, I'm through with playing by the rules of someone else's game. I'm through accepting limits because someone else says they're so. Some things I cannot change, but till I try, I'll never know. One of the places we visited with John Wesley that I, I really wasn't all that excited about that turned out to be amazing was Bristol. It turned out that there was a group of people who had become kind of Methodist, people like George Whitfield and, and John and Charles Wesley and others, people who had been at Oxford and now had this message to proclaim. Because he was proclaiming this new message, these Methodist preachers could not preach in church. The Anglican churches would not let them come preach in church. 
And if they tried preaching outside, people would throw stones and beat them. They were different. And so they were vilified, the early Methodist preachers. George Whitfield had gone out there to Bristol and he was preaching in the open air. And he wrote to John Wesley and said, come out here. And John Wesley wrote back and said, I'm thinking about going back to America. I want to work with the heathens. George wrote back and said, if you want heathens, come to Bristol. We have lots of them. And so he decided to go out to Bristol. But along the way, he comes to Hanham Mount. Hanham Mount. It's in Kingswood. And that's where... George Whitfield had gone to preach in this open air and all these coal miners and their families would come. They didn't feel welcome in the Anglican church. And John Wesley will write in his diary, I can't imagine trying to preach not in church. I mean, how can you worship God if you're not in church? It was so outside his comfort zone. But he goes and he stands up and we went and stood on this place on the mount where he preached and there's this beautiful view and he writes in his diary, 1,500 people came. And he knew this is what God was calling him to do, to go out and to preach in the open air. And he would spend the rest of his life literally traveling around England, preaching to thousands in the open air. And it's what would start this movement known as Methodist. I can just hear it being said, I'm through with playing by the rules of someone else's game. I'm through accepting limits because someone says they're so. Some things I cannot change, but till I try, I'll never know. I wonder what you can change. What God is calling you to do. If you and I would hear that call, that we want to live in a different voice in our culture. Secondly, the other song that I love is, I've been changed for good. You're going to hear that in a few moments. I've been changed for good. By the end of the show, Alphabet knows. The wizard, he has spread the word. He's told the lies. She's green. She looks different. And it's easy for him to sell the story. She is wicked. She is to be feared. She needs to die. And Alphabet's on the run. And she has a meeting again with Galinda. And these two women begin to talk. And now they're both so different from when the show started. They're both, both more compassionate, more loving, more forgiving. They're different. And these two women who started off despising each other because they were so different have become such good friends. They got to know each other and they became friends. And so they sing a duet to each other I've heard it said that people come into our lives for a reason, bringing something we must learn. And we are led to those who help us most to grow if we let them and we help them in return. But I don't know if I believe that's true, but I know I am who I am today because of you. It may well be that we may never meet again in this lifetime. So let me say before we part, so much of me is made of what I learned from you. You'll be with me like a handprint on my heart. And now, whatever way our stories end, I know you have rewritten mine by being my friend, because I knew you 
I've been changed for good. I thought of those disciples. The fishermen. Starting off making so many mistakes. They didn't understand who Jesus was or his ministry. But for three years they lived with him. And then after the resurrection they lived with him in their spirit. They knew Jesus. They wanted to walk with Jesus. And I hear those disciples saying, I know that whatever way our stories end, I know you have rewritten mine by being my friend. Because I knew you, I've been changed for the good. It was the story of the disciples. It's our story. It was the story of Wesley. You know, early on in his ministry, Wesley decided, I want Christ to be everything in my life. He began to feel like, you know, he was kind of half a Christian. And he thought, it's not good enough being half a Christian. I need to be a complete Christian. I need Christ completely in my life so that all that I do and all that I say is led with Christ. He was committed to growing in that relationship. And so the things he would learn to do, the new disciplines he would create, were all about growing close with Christ. When we started on the trip, we were given a journal. And in the front of the journal, there was Wesley's Covenant Prayer. And we were encouraged to take a time each day to read that covenant prayer as we went out to go learn about him. And I want to read you what Wesley wrote. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thou art mine and I am Thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. He wanted to live completely with Christ. We traveled to London. We went to his grave. He died in 1791. He was 87 years old. To make it to 87... Back in the 1700s, that was quite an accomplishment. Born in 1703, died in 1791. He had traveled a quarter of a million miles, 250,000 miles on horseback. That's like going from the earth to the moon. He had preached more than 40,000 sermons. That's preaching multiple sermons every day, out in the open air preaching to thousands of people. He literally changed England in the 1700s with a different message. We went to Wesley's Chapel there in, um, uh, in London. And there you'll find that the, the pillars holding up the, the balcony are massed from old English ships. They've been given to Wesley by King George. Because King George loved Wesley. Because he believed that Wesley had helped to save England from an event like the French Revolution. Because he had traveled throughout all of England starting these 
classes, these societies, these groups of people. And he focused on things like health care for the poor in these groups and the hungry and education. He helped them find funds to invest in their own business. The Methodists started off as the poor and moved to middle class and upper middle class. He literally changed the economics of the country, but he helped change his spirit by preaching 40,000 sermons all over the country with things like, nobody has all the truth. Think and let think. If you love God and you love your neighbor, then give me the right hand of fellowship. We can be friends. We may be different, but let's put out the effort to get to know each other. We don't need to judge and condemn and vilify each other. Let's come to know each other. And we can work for good in changing this world. John Wesley was able to do something so significant because of his faith in Christ. You and I can do something significant if we are grounded in Christ so that we too can say, and now whatever way my story ends, I know you have rewritten mine by being my friend because I knew you. I've been changed for the good. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.